Luke chapter 13. If you have a Bible, get on over there. Luke chapter 13. We've got Bibles provided around the room for you if you need one of those. And if you don't have one at home, take one of those Bibles we have provided and just bring that home. That's our gift to you. Uh, You can also look it up on your app if you have one of those on your phone. Or we've got this big glowing Bible behind me here uh, that you can uh, check out as well. And so we'll be there in Luke chapter 13. Uh, 13. While you're finding your way there, let me just say that I, uh, I you know, I hope you had a really good summer. Uh, I've, I've just been uh, praying for you this summer, and uh, like I said, Boston Public School has started back uh, this week. Many of our students have, have started back this week. Uh, 300,000 college students have merged into the population, so that's kind of wild, uh, this unique city that we live in. Uh, we've had some chilly nights this week, and all these are signs that we're entering into the New England uh, fall, which is just an amazing season. We'll be sipping cider and eating maple donuts before you know it. And so, uh, with all of that, would you uh, still humor me with one more summer story? Can I give you a summer story? So, um, last beach day of the summer for my family, uh, we went out to the Outer Banks uh, in North Carolina, uh, where the water is actually warm. Can you believe that? And it was awesome. We went down there, and uh, I decided since it was the last day of summer that I would just make a sandcastle to supersede all sandcastles, right? And it was totally for my kids, not for me. And uh, so I, I, let me just let you in a little bit on my uh, sandcastle-making methodology. So here's how it works for me. What I do is I grab the boogie board, and uh, I will scrape and scoop up sand and make this massive pile of sand. And I do that right where the, the water almost meets the sand as the tide is going out so that I can have a source of water for my moat that will come later. And so I do that. And uh, then when it starts to get interesting, one of my kids will come along and, and claim it as their own. And sure enough, that happened. My daughter comes and says, this is great. This is my castle, right? And so she says, this is my castle. This is my, uh, this is my castle. I'm the queen. I'm the, actually, she said the princess. And so she claimed it. It's hers. And then she starts to provide instructions for me as to direction, you know, for how the castle is going to, to look. And so she said, we need seashells. And so we started collecting seashells and sticks and, and seaweed and all that kind of stuff. You know, seashells are really good for scraping the detail into your castle. Or they can make windows or they can make, you know, flagstones and jewels around the top. And so we did that. We took sticks and tied up seaweed and made, made flags. And my, my little daughter is such a visionary, you know. And so uh, this visionary, you know, she decided pretty soon it was time to expand her little castle into a kingdom. And so it came now complete with houses for Barbie and for Ken, separate houses. And Chelsea had a house uh, back there, which I didn't know until recently that Chelsea is Barbie and Ken's baby. And so uh, we made a house for for Chelsea as well. And then uh, she decided that we needed um, some servants' quarters for her brothers. <laughs> and so Isaiah and Luca, her, her brothers, lived in the servants' quarters. And uh, we built the, the castle. And as we were building this thing and building the kingdom and expanding this thing, this, this uh, little girl comes near to us and starts kind of lingering awkwardly close, you know. And uh, you can tell she was envious of our awesome castle that I made. And uh, she quickly goes back to her dad. And says, Daddy, I want to build a castle. And so he comes and he parks it, you know, same distance from the water, about 10 feet away from ours. And uh, starts building his little castle and moat and kingdom and became strangely identical to ours. Now, I'm a competitive person. And, and so it was on, right? <laughs> and so I started to perfect my kingdom 
from the invaders to the north, you know, and started expanding this thing and, and making big walls and moats and just kind of claiming more territory. I had, I had pools, I had colleges, you know, I had uh, car dealerships and ATM machines. I mean, obviously, you have to. And so uh, until as I'm getting into this, and I was into it, and then I realized, I look over here at his, and I realized neither of our daughters are around anymore. <laughs> it's just us in this little silent competition. And uh, I had my, my kingdom, but I was realizing at that point, it was time to abandon the kingdom because this is really strange and, and oddly competitive. And uh, today we're going to begin this new series that we're calling Upside Down Kingdom. And so if you're newer with us to the church family, I'd say this, this is a great time to, to jump in. Uh, we've been spending uh, about a year now, it'll be a total, maybe a year and a half, two years of going through uh, the New Testament book of Luke. But we're going to really jump in now and, and focus in on the, the kingdom of God as Jesus is teaching on the kingdom really starts to, to pick up steam. And so today we're going to look at 1310 all the way through 14.6. And we're going to skip over 1331 through 35 because we covered that a few weeks ago. And it's going to feel a little bit different today, but I want to kind of set up the, the kingdom. Our, our primary focus is going to be 18 through 21 where Jesus opens for us with this question that I just want to give to you right now. And the question is, what is the kingdom of God like? Or we could say the kingdom of heaven, it's interchangeable in the scriptures. What is it like? And he says, and to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Now, several years ago, I had somebody challenge me on using kingdom building language. He didn't like that. He didn't like that I was using kingdom building language, even though it's a dominant biblical theme. He didn't like it because it sounded so territorial, you know? It sounded so crusades-like. It sounded so inquisition-ish. Is that what the kingdom of God is like? I understand his struggle with this language of the kingdom of God because he expressed this concern out of really a lack of anything good to compare the kingdom of God to. Because kingdoms get corrupted. They, they, they eventually trample people. Bad leaders come in. Mission drift starts to happen. All leading to just Corrupt kingdom after corrupt kingdom after corrupt kingdom. Now, back to the beach. It was time for me to stop building my little kingdom, or should I say my daughter's little kingdom, when I realized that my kingdom endeavor was strangely corrupt. It was kind of odd. It started out really noble for my kids, but then it kind of evolved into a competition with the dad next door. And though we're talking about sand kingdoms here, I, I think it's, it's probably not unlike our earthly kingdoms that we build, our, our endeavors that we embark on, whether it's your education, whether it's your career, whether it's some project that you're working on, or it's your, your marriage even, or your, your, your family, or our cities, or our, our governments, they oftentimes start out very well-meaning, but end up corrupted and end up self-focused. And why is that? It's because humans are kings. Humans are queens. Humans, in my daughter's case, are princesses. And my sandcastle was created by a, a human. And what we're looking at in this season is we're looking at the kingdom of God, where God is both creator, God is also king, and he's building something more beautiful than you can possibly imagine. And he's desiring, wanting to reign out of perfect love and perfect holiness and perfect justice. 
the kingdom of God is not what we understand as just a typical kingdom with geographic boundaries or moats or a a human leader or a human creator or this constant need to fight to expand, this constant need to fight for dominion. The the kingdom of God doesn't have these things. And so let's think through those. The the kingdom of God doesn't have geographic boundaries. John chapter 18, 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is, do you know it? Not of this world. It's not a physical kingdom. It's not a, a, a physical kingdom. Yet it's more real than any other physical kingdom out there. All other kingdoms are going to dissolve. My sandcastle later that afternoon washed away. But the kingdom of God, Hebrews chapter 12, 28 says, is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so there's no geographic boundary in the kingdom of God. There's, 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 there's no solely human leader. Jesus says, Luke chapter 17, he's talking to the Pharisees and he looks at him. He says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Why is that? The kingdom of God is in the midst of you because I'm standing right here, Jesus is saying. It's in the midst of you because I'm right here, right? The kingdom of God is his presence and his active rule and reign throughout history. The rule and the reign of an eternal God. The kingdom of God also doesn't have this constant need to fight for dominion. Think about what Psalm chapter 103, 19 says. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all his kingdom rules over all that's established that's done deal and so we don't have to worry we don't have to 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 run around feeling threatened as citizens of the kingdom of God we don't have to live these reactionary lives as people who are struggling for power we live in the security of the eternal dominion and kingdom of God you start to see how that kind of affects or should affect how we live our lives We live in this kind of security, one king, one kingdom, a borderless, nationality neutral, freed up to love, not fight, eternal kind of kingdom. Nothing is more important than the kingdom of God. Nothing. Think about what Jesus says, Matthew 6, 33. Many of you memorize it as a child. He says this, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. For me, there's probably nothing more convicting than that this morning. Is that something that we're doing? Is that true of us? Are we seeking first and foremost and primary and everything else revolves around our seeking of the kingdom of God? Or do we seek first education? Do we seek first career? Do we seek first things that even seem noble like family? Do we seek first this project? Do we seek first this portfolio? No, he says seek first the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is unlike anything else you have ever seen. And so when we get glimpses of the kingdom of God as it it manifests itself in our our day-to-day lives, people are left scratching their head. It's something that they just don't see on a regular basis. It's, It's different. God takes our norm and he flips it upside down. And so we're calling this series the Upside Down Kingdom. And deep within us, I believe that everybody is longing to be a part of this kind of kingdom. Romans chapter 8 will tell us that all creation is groaning together for this. All of creation is groaning. In other words, all of creation realizes that something is off. Something is askew. And we're all longing for change. 
Think about it this way. I'd love to, to do an experiment where if we grabbed a camera and we went onto the streets of, of our city and we just started to ask people, what is wrong with the, the world? I think we'd get all kinds of different answers, wouldn't we? I wonder what, if I were to ask you, what do you think is wrong with the world? What you would, you would say, in fact, go ahead and identify that in your mind right now. What is wrong with the world? And we have all kinds of ideas, I imagine, even in a room of people united on Jesus as to what's wrong with the world. Some would say it's government. Government is what is wrong with the world. It's corrupt. They abuse power. There's broken systems. And that is no doubt true. And so throughout history, what happens is an idealist will rise up and lead a a revolt. And what happens then is bad government is replaced by bad government, right? And so we just lead to to more government. Maybe it starts out kind of good, but it eventually goes bad. And so we see the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms. And this is the cycle of history, right? You can just trace the biblical narrative along and see it's just the cycle of history. So some people say, well, it's not government then. It's, it's, It's education, where there's ample access to to education. Education is power, right? And power to the people, right? And so some people don't have access to education, and so they don't know the truth, and they get taken advantage of, and corruption follows. And so education is is the problem, right? I, I do agree that education is a real problem. There have been many, many studies undergone that, that, that will really prove that it's, it's true that over a long period of time these studies will show that, that when there's no education there's struggle but when access to education is made available it's, it's incredible what starts to happen. But what's interesting is even though great change starts to happen it's never eradicated. Crime is never eradicated. The, the problems of society they're never eradicated. In fact even with more education guess what comes? More sophisticated crime, right? And so you just can't win with, with education. So some people say, no, it's not education, it's daddies. I've talked about this up front too, right? I deeply believe that fatherlessness in our culture is a society, and so I'd agree that is a problem. And again, studies will show where there's a rampant absentee mentality for fathers. Things go south really, really fast. But where there are strong, nurturing, loving, protective, uh, sensitive men, it leads to a thriving in the culture. However, I know people who have had no father at all and turned out awesome. And I know people who've had awesome fathers and turned out terrible. So this isn't this bulletproof theory, right? So some people say, okay, well then it's not the dads. The problem is, we could go on and on, but some people say the problem is religion. You heard that? And you just look at history and religion always seems to get corrupted. And I can't stand up here and disagree with that, can I? Religion seems to get corrupted. All organized religion throughout all of history has some kind of dark stain or series of dark stains. But think with me about those people who sought to abolish organized religion. Stalin, Mao, Hitler. You want to side with those guys? I don't think so. Millions and millions of people murdered. Listen, with or without religion, people do terrible things. And if we did abolish organized religion, remember, religion that has also done a, a, a ton of good. Think about disaster relief. Think about people being cared for all over the globe. If organized religion was completely abolished, we would have a massive, massive problem on our hands. An inability to care for the needs of the world. So some would say, well, then it's not religion. It's extremists. It's religious 
extremists like radical Islam. Obviously, not all Muslims are radical, or it's the, the radical extremes of Christianity, like the Crusades, like the Inquisition, or today, the radical branches who are intolerant, right? And that's the current cultural trend right now. If you were to ask most people, I'd say they, most would say it's, it's tolerance. That's, that's the problem. You can see it in our songs, in our movies, in our commercials. However, let me ask you, where do we draw the line when it comes to tolerance? Do we need to tolerate a scumbag who says, I need lots and lots of sex with multiple women because that's how I was born and I have that need and so he's unfaithful to his wife and ruins his family and ruins his, his children? Listen, if we love and accept and tolerate everybody, it's gonna hurt somebody. Does that make sense? Somebody's gonna get hurt and that will be, in this case, his, his children. So we can't tolerate everybody without hurting somebody. Do you see how the logic there, even with tolerance, starts to fall apart? Listen, everyone has their opinions. Maybe you do too, with what's wrong with the world. And I've been, I've been practicing this exercise with people for a very, very, very long time. And people's answers to these questions just keep coming. But you know one response I never get when I say what's wrong with the world? I never get nothing. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with the world. Everything's right with the world. It's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. No, everyone agrees that something is off. And everyone's ideas seem to discredit everybody else's ideas. So what are we to think? What are we to do? Here's my question. I always ask, what is the common denominator? What is the common denominator with all these things that maybe discredit each other? Common denominator is people. Us. Government makers and and leaders. Education hoarders who prohibit access of the masses. Bad dads. Religious people. Religious extremists. They're all people. People are the problem. There's something off Not with just the symptoms. Those are symptoms. Something's off with humanity. Think with me about how the Bible explains this as we think through the narrative of the Scripture. On the very first page of your Bible, it says, In the beginning, God created. That God makes his sandcastle kingdom. He, he, he creates, and all of it is spectacular, and it all reflects him. All the beautiful design of what God has made points us to a beautiful creator God. Every mountain sunset, every beachfront, every majestic animal, it points us to a creator. And as he makes all of these things, we read through the narrative that he makes it. He says, and that's good, and that's good, and that's good. And then his last creation His most special creation, he makes mankind. And after making mankind, he doesn't just say that's good. He says that's very good. That's complete. The Bible says that we're made in the image and the likeness of God. That's why humans can, we're just capable of creating amazing beauty. Humans create buildings and art and music and story and generate ideas. Why? Because we're made in the image and the likeness of a creative God who made all that we know and see. And some people will only preach sin. And let me be careful here because we preach sin like crazy. We did it last week. Some people will only preach sin though and never preach what came before that. That God's original design was this beautiful creation. Mankind, creative, beautiful people. It's beautiful. But then sin comes. 
And he's restoring us back to that original design. So we're made in the image and the likeness of God as, as his special creation. But Genesis chapter 1 and 2 tells us that. It tells us that God walks in the garden with his most special creation, his, his people. It's his design. It's, it's beautiful. The kingdom of God is not just this New Testament idea. It's, it's God's plan from the beginning that people would live under the rule and the reign of a loving, gracious God. And they would be under his rule and his reign and in right relationship with him. And that's the original picture of the kingdom that we get. It's amazing. It's, it's beautiful. The Bible uses this word shalom. It's perfect peace and harmony in all things. And we get to enjoy the world under God's reign. And everything kind of centers on him. And then after doing that, God tells his people, he says, I want you to exercise dominion. In other words, you are below me, obviously. And that just makes sense. If I'm the creator, you're below me. However, you're my most special creation. And so you're over everything else. And I want you to enjoy it. That's food, that's family, that's animals, sunsets, swimming, sex, holding a baby, all of it should lead to a worship of the God who created it all. It's shalom. That's God's order. That's peace. But then Genesis chapter 3 happens, and there's this fracture, and mankind rebels against God. Do you know the story? We, we rebel against God. Sin enters the world, and sin is when we say, I want to rule. I want to play God. I want to be the king. And there's a problem. The fracture happens. And what's wrong with the world, my suggestion, according to the scripture, what's out of order is the structure in which God designed things. I rule, you follow me, and then you can exercise dominion. And we mix it up and we say, I want to rule. I want to be the king. And there's a fracture. And things go south really bad. And sin infiltrates all of humanity. All things are, are broken. We start to get these glimmers of hope. Shortly thereafter, he makes a promise about God raising up one who's going to crush Satan, the serpent. He gets into Genesis chapter 12. God appears to Abraham and he says, I'm going to create a people. And from this people, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the world. And I'm going to restore my kingdom. Uh, Again, that's the Abrahamic covenant. The story goes on. Abraham's family begins to grow and to spread. And his great-grandson, Joseph, is sold into slavery. And and from that, we get into the land of of Egypt. Uh, And as we're in slavery there, in, in Egypt, God raises up then Moses. You know the story of Moses leading to the Passover, which is this beautiful picture of the blood of Jesus, all pointing to Jesus. It all points to Jesus, all the Old Testament. He's always been intended to be our king. And so God delivers them out of the land of Egypt, brings them into the promised land, this little sliver of land. Israel emerges. And then, now that they're in the land, eventually Israel says, now we want a king. And they look to the people all around them, to the kingdoms all around them, and they say, we want a king. They get a king, why don't we get a king? And God says, I'm your king. That's how it's always been for my people. I'm your your king, but they want a king. And God says, okay, let's try out your bogus idea. Let me give you exactly what you want. He gives them a guy named Saul who's a head taller than everybody else, a valiant warrior, amazing man according to what we think of, of great leaders. But Saul tanks, doesn't he? And then really, essentially, every king after that tanks. Just story after story after story of faulty king. Just a few kings in, the kingdom splits, and it goes really bad. 
until the very end of the Old Testament, all these failed kings, Malachi chapter 4 promises us of this great and glorious day of God, the coming of the kingdom that they've been waiting for, that they've seen broken. And then there's 400 years of silence until it happens. And we started this series in the book of Luke, and Jesus comes onto the scene. God becomes a man. Angels appear to shepherds, and they start to sing about peace. They start to sing about the shalom again. These wise men from the east, they'll, they'll show up, and, and they start to say things like we saw uh, in the stars. Uh, it, they were telling about this king, and we start to hear about the, the king again. And the king comes, and he's born in a barn. That's upside-down kingdom, isn't it? King born in, in a barn. It's not your traditional kingdom entrance. I always think about Prince Ali, right? Aladdin coming on his elephant. No, he's coming into a barn. That's how he enters the scene. And so Jesus grows up. Satan tempts him for 40 days. And and at one point, Satan will take Jesus and he will show him in in a moment. He'll show him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, they can be yours, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't even bite at it, does he? He says, the kingdom is already mine. I don't need you to give me the kingdom. Jesus begins his ministry. And in Luke chapter 4, right at the beginning of his ministry, he declares this. He says, I must preach the good news of the, guess, the kingdom. Just goes, lots of kingdom talk as he goes through his ministry. Everywhere he goes, kingdom talk, kingdom talk, kingdom talk. And yet, unlike a traditional king, he doesn't get served. He serves upside down kingdom. And kings and rulers don't like him, do they? And so they, they, they kill him and hang him on a cross. And above his head, they, they hang a sign that says, King of the Jews, and they mock him. He dies this, this brutal death, and in this amazing kingdom victory, comes back to life. What appears to be a loss is actually a win. See how it works? Upside down kingdom. And he comes back to life, and he has 40 days to say his last words to his disciples while walking with them on this earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. We love Acts chapter 1, verse 1 and and 2, but Acts chapter 3 says that he came appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about, take a guess, the kingdom of God. He's got all these disciples and all of his other uh, apostles now, leaders, and he comes to speak to them for 40 last days. And he doesn't say, okay, here's how we're going to run the church. Here's what the org chart is going to look like. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to manage things. Here's how we're going to take over the world. He says this. He says, let me just tell you about the kingdom. Here's how you live kingdom living. Kingdom is unique. It's different. And that is what we are called to seek first. We're to seek first the kingdom of God. Now, as we start to round third base, I want to look. I told you it's different. I just want to look briefly towards the end here at our passage for today. As we enter the the kingdom. We get this really great kingdom imagery. Look at Luke 13. Let me read 10 through 17 and then I'll skip to 14, 1 through 6, kind of the bookends of our section for today. Look at Luke 13, verse 10. It says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself out. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to people, 
There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. What a jerk. Verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from the bond on this Sabbath day? And he said, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. All the glorious things. Apparently there were many other things that Jesus was up to that was just wowing the people. Chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, he went on to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and healed him and sent him away and said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox even, an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So throughout the book of Luke, we have studied how ridiculous the religious leaders had become in this day. I mean, just ridiculous. So much so that they would accuse Jesus of sinning if he healed people who were in desperate, terrible situations on their Sabbath day. And he calls them out and he says, you'll feed your donkey on the Sabbath day. You'll walk your donkey to get water on the Sabbath day, to get food on the Sabbath day. Yet you think it's exercise or it's, it's work for me to heal this person who's in dire need? He says, you're hypocrites. He, he then says, you'd rescue your son or even your donkey if he fell into a well on the Sabbath day. But you won't let me heal this man in a desperate situation? You are deeply corrupted. Jesus just keeps healing. And we've seen it all through the book of Luke that everywhere Jesus goes, he just, he just keeps healing. Why? Because he's painting for us a picture that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. And when it's fully realized, death and sickness and pain will be no more. And so for you, I know you're feeling it in times of pain, in times of hurt, in times of sickness, in times of heartache. We cling to our future hope, the full realization of the kingdom that it will be no more. So we get to the end of the scriptures that tells us that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death and pain will be no more. Now, can we read on? Look at verse 18 again, chapter 13. He said, therefore, in light of his healing, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? So I've shown you a glimpse of the kingdom. You get a picture of what it looks like, that I'll just, all this pain, all this sickness, all this heartache is going to be gone. He says, let's, let's talk about it a little more. The kingdom of God, that's what it is. To what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So he gives us these two pictures of the kingdom. Great, great little pictures. One, it's like a mustard seed. And two, it's like yeast. He says, like a mustard seed. For this very agricultural society... It was the smallest seed that they could possibly imagine. It was like a speck of dust for them. And and someone would plant a, a mustard seed, and a mustard seed could lie dormant 
for several years until all the, the elements worked together and in one season could grow over 10 feet tall. One of the greatest plants in the Middle East. And he's saying, listen, don't be deceived by the humble beginnings of the kingdom of God. Yes, it's small at this moment. Yes, you might feel like our little band of brothers and what God's doing here is tiny, but you need to know that it's massive all over the world and it's just going to explode. The kingdom is the hope of the world. And he goes on and he says, and birds made nests in his branches. Likewise, the kingdom of God is home for you. Not this world. The kingdom of God is home for you. And you can find your care and you can find your rest and you can find your nesting ground in the kingdom of God. It's like a mustard seed. It might be dormant or feel like it right now. It's been inaugurated, but it's coming in fullness and you can experience it even here on this earth. He also tells them the kingdom of God is like yeast. For them, their minds would have immediately have gone not to, you know, where you can buy yeast for your baking needs. Their, their minds would have immediately gone to a lump uh, of dough with active yeast already inside of it. This, this mysterious, invisible substance. And what does yeast do? It makes dough rise, right? And he says, that's like the kingdom of God. It radically transforms everything that it comes in contact with. And our prayer is that that would be said of all of us. That the kingdom of God would first radically transform us and then those of us who are part of the kingdom of God that things that we touch would be radically transformed as we bear the Holy Spirit, as we make an impact in our world that our marriages, our families, our workplaces, our education, our, our careers, our cities, our government, our schools, they would be changed as they come in contact with the kingdom of God. Not that just because somebody hangs out with us, they become a follower of Jesus, they become a Christian. But we can make a massive impact, just like yeast, as it touches anything, makes a massive, massive impact. It's a beautiful thing, something that he says, I want you to take this to the bank. The kingdom of God makes a great impact. Now, let's close with these last few verses, 22 through 30. And he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. This whole time, he's just working his way towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. And then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, you yourselves will be cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are some Behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. He's speaking directly to the people that are listening to him, who are accusing him, who think they're holy and righteous. And he's saying, you think you're right there. You think you're in, and yet you're not. He says, there are going to be people coming from north and south and east and west, all types of people in the kingdom. There is no stereotypical person. That's why we celebrate diversity in our church because that's how we experience the kingdom is the kingdom is an 
ethnically diverse, culturally diverse, generationally diverse, socioeconomically diverse kingdom, all types of people from all over the place. There's no favorites in the kingdom of God. In fact, the last in our society will be first. And those who are first, in this case, these religious leaders are the worst because their hearts are cold. And Jesus says, and you will be in an eternal torment where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You will wish you were able to be a part of the kingdom. You thought you were a part of the kingdom, but you weren't because you rejected me, Jesus says. I am the only way. I am the narrow door. I'm the kingdom, back to Luke 17, where we'll eventually land towards the end of this kingdom focus. Jesus looks at them. He says, the kingdom is in the midst of you. He says, you are looking for a blood moon. You're looking for all these signs. He says, I've come. The kingdom is right here before you. The kingdom is in the midst of you. I am the way. My rule and my reign in your life, that's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. So let me invite you, if you would close your eyes for just a minute. We like to do this a lot around here. Let's just take some time to, to just do a little evaluation of our own heart. First, you need to go before the Lord and say, God, am I part of your kingdom? Have I entered through the narrow door that is Jesus Christ? Have I trusted in him alone? Have I made my life all about him? By turning from sin and turning wholeheartedly and trusting it all to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. You are in desperate need of a Savior. What's wrong with the world? You are. I am. We are sinful. We are broken people. But God in his graciousness has made a way for that creation design to be restored. And that was all the way from Genesis chapter 3. This Jesus who would rise up. And some of you today need to trust in him. Recognize that he has lived the life you couldn't live. This humble king on the earth, but who resurrected to life, showing that he is ruler over all things. He defeated Satan's sin and death, and he wants to be the king of your life. You can enter in through that narrow door and be a part of the kingdom. The Bible says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe you've never called upon the name of Jesus. I would implore you right now to call upon Jesus. The simplest of prayer. The most beautiful, deep thing that could ever happen in your life is calling upon the name of Jesus with a heart of faith and trust and repentance. As we pray and as we sing, I just encourage you in the best way you know how call out to him and there are others of us in this room who we're Christians we love Jesus we want to follow Jesus all the days of our lives but we'd be honest in assessing ourselves and saying you know what I'm not seeking first the kingdom of God I'd encourage you to confess that to the Lord ask him to change your heart Ask him to give you a picture of his glorious kingdom, his eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. That though we have trouble tangibly touching it on this planet, that we would know that it is more real than any other kingdom or king in our history books. 
God, give us kingdom minds. Make us a kingdom people. May we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and know that all the other things will be added to us. You'll give us everything we need. You'll care for us. Be in the branches of the, the mustard tree. God, thank you for what you're doing in the hearts of your people. Calibrate our hearts, Lord, as we respond. In the name of Jesus, we pray.